0: Today's sermon texts are Exodus 20:18 20, through 21 and 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is God's word.
1: Amen. Thank you, Cassandra. Um, Good morning, everybody. Uh, Today, I'm going to be talking about fear. I'm going to be talking about fear. Um, Fear strangles good intentions every day. Every day. Um, Many of us wish to do things that... And fear puts up a roadblock. Fear keeps us from having godly ambitions and holy ambitions for more from Jesus. We're afraid of what Jesus might do or say when he lifts up the hood of our lives and begins to tinker with what's going on down below. Uh, Fear keeps us from stepping up and serving in nursery because diapers are scary. Uh, When I was the associate pastor of this church, I served once a month in the nursery and the biggest terror was the prospect of changing a diaper. And then my wife said, hey, we only let ladies change diapers. And I was like, Yes, thank you, Jesus. And so, uh, so that was great. I had some, fe- some legitimate fear there because I can barely take my own kids. So um, diapers, that is. Um, love my kids. Love you, kids. Um, fear keeps us from being bold and courageous. Fear keeps us oftentimes locked in insecurity. And fear gives us regret. Regret. Because we will look back one day and say to ourselves, why didn't I act more boldly, more bravely? Why didn't I follow what was in my heart, even though it was risky and scary and threatening and terrible and terrific at the same time? Why didn't I do that? Fear gives us regret. And so how do we address this? How do we address this? We talked through the first few weeks of this series on vision about what the core function and identity of church is. It's mission. It's mission. Church is not primarily a place where we come get served. It's not primarily a place where we hear great messages and experience wonderful hospitality. Church is a place where we all learn to roll up our sleeves and give of ourselves to the mission of God, which is to bring the gospel to all who don't know him. That is why church exists. We spent three weeks on that. Last week, we talked a little bit about what one of our goals is as a church, something that we're striving for and reaching for. We don't want to be a triumphalist church. We don't want to be the kind of church populated by the Stepford Wives. We don't want plastic faces and robotic actions. We don't want it to be the case that every time we roll out a new initiative, the neon applause sign drops down and everybody's signal to... <laughs> Get on board and get excited about everything. Don't get me wrong. I love it when you get excited about things that we roll out. But sometimes there are things that we have to do as a church that aren't exciting. Or if they are exciting, they're still really scary. Like going to two services. I've got some fear in that regard. My, one of my th- the things that I want to preserve about our church is the feeling and I think the reality of hospitality. Hospitality and friendliness. But more than that, I desperately want to preserve the sense, the DNA that makes our church, I think, kind of unique, and that is is that we love each other. It's hard sometimes. We get mad at each other sometimes. We bug each other sometimes. Our relationships sometimes are on the verge of burning down because we're doing life in a broken world, but we love one another. We love one another, and I want to protect the intimacy that we have together. I want to protect the critical, feeling of critical mass and energy that we have in this room. But there's no place to park. <laughs> and there's no seats to sit in. I said a couple of weeks ago, I feel guilty every time some usher takes you guys up to the first or second row because I know you're dying a thousand deaths when that happens. Um, so I've got some fear about that. What happens when we go to two services and... 90% show up at 9.15, 9, is it 9.15 or 9? I forget. 9.15. And then 25 people show up at 11. Please don't do that to me. Please, please. That'll be the worst Monday ever. Um, uh, we've got some fear, and so some of us, some other, some others of us have fear. Now, nobody said, "Hey, I'm really scared not doing this, fighting this all the way." But I'm not, I can tell by the, the, the demeanor, the tone, uh, I could just tell. Maybe there's a shadow over you, like, "Yeah, I'm, I'm going to get excited about this," but uh, change is hard, and some of us just fear change. We fear that. I want to talk about fear in relation to that, but also the overarching narrative of fear that. Every one of us in this room lives in. Every one of us. Every one of us in this room fears something every day. Every single day. Every day. I want to talk about our feelings today. Mm-mm, feelings. That doesn't sound very spiritual. Um, It's because American evangelicalism has taught us that feelings are suspicious, that feelings are a threat to spiritual growth. And if we're not careful... Feelings can undermine everything Jesus has done in our lives. So maybe we should just maybe think about fear or feelings a little bit and then, and then obliterate it and put it out of our minds. I don't think that's what the scriptures teach about the way that we feel because the fee- our feelings are at the core of who we are. Our hearts are more than thinking things. That's what James K.A. Smith said in his wonderful book, You Are What You Love. Our hearts, our minds, who we are, we are more than thinking things. We are more than robots with intentions to do things. At our very core, we are people who feel. We're people who feel. And feelings, I would submit to you, are not intended to be expunged. Feelings should be validated. Feelings, I would submit to you, should be honored. Honored. Feelings are intended to be felt. That's why we have them. They're intended to be grasped as we look at them and think about them. Feelings are intended to be heard. Listen to them. Learn to discern what feelings are saying about you and about the world. And feelings should be learned from. I'm not saying feelings should be learned from above Scripture. I'm not saying that feelings should be learned from above God. I'm saying that we can learn from our feelings. And I don't think that God is afraid of our feelings. I really don't think that He is. And so here's what I'm going to propose to you today. That our fears are not, N-O-T, not, in and of themselves wrong wrong or sinful, not even your fear. But to be controlled by them is. Feelings are not given to us to rule us. They're given to us to help us navigate this broken world, navigating this world. And I believe, and I'm also going to propose to you, that God wants to meet us in our feelings, in our fear, and he wants to encourage us. I believe that you can find life in God in the middle of your fear. When you're under a truckload of fear, I believe, I think Scripture shows us that God is really present in those moments, in those seasons. Because most of our fears and pain isn't just for a moment. It's not like slamming our finger in the door. Because that lasts, it seems like forever. But, But you know what I mean. Our fear, our pain often... Is seasonal. It lasts a long time. It's something that wears us down. It's something that overwhelms us, crushes us, makes us cynical, steals from us our childlike faith and trust in Jesus. Um, This verse that we read, that uh, Cassandra read, 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, I find that text totally remarkable. And if you read it without familiarity if you don't read it like you've read it a thousand times already and you've learned to over-spiritualize it, but just read it for what it says, it is shocking how vulnerable the, the Apostle Paul is. He says in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 5, and I, talking to the Corinthians, when I came to you, when he came to bring them the gospel for the very first time, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech and wisdom. Why did he say this? Because Corinth was a major seaport in the Roman Empire. Corinth was a thriving metropolis. Corinth was a place where people would have imprinted on on the Roman Empire's poets and philosophers. They would have known what it would have been like to be wowed by street prophets and street poets and street philosophers. They would have known that. And Paul knew as he went into Corinth to bring the gospel, he knew that that was the context that he was walking into. And he knew that what he didn't need to do was to compete with the rhetoric and the brilliance of the people that they had heard. He did not need to give them the medicine that they were addicted to or the drug that they were addicted to. He wanted to give them something else. He didn't want to compete necessarily with the ideas and the brilliance of the people that they had heard. But rather, he proclaimed to you, he says, I proclaim to you, the testimony of God, and I I did not come to you to proclaim the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Verse 2, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, Paul's not creating some false dichotomy here where he doesn't want us to use our brains and thinking deeply is off limits. That's not what Paul is saying. But Paul, as we'll see as we read through this, he wanted to make sure that the people who came to Jesus came to Jesus because the power of the Holy Spirit penetrated their hearts and they didn't convert to a belief system because it was the most brilliant one that they had ever heard. He wanted to know that they had been brought from death to life by the power of the Spirit. And so he went into the city of Corinth and he preached the simple gospel of Jesus Christ that's of him crucified. And then he says this in verse 3. Knowing this context, knowing that he would be judged as not being smart enough or not being as brilliant as other preachers and other poets and other philosophers, Paul admits this and he says, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. How many of your favorite preachers on television talk that way? Imagine me standing up here and saying to you that being with you guys gives me a feeling of fear to the point that I tremble. Not because I've got like this super spiritual, God is so holy and man, I just love him so much and I'm trembling before him in the fear of God, but because I'm afraid of you. I'm afraid that what you're going to think about what I'm saying. I'm afraid that you're going to judge what I'm saying as preposterous and reject it altogether. And I fear that. But I'm going to stand up here anyway and face my fears and preach Jesus and Him crucified and whatever happens, happens. That's essentially what Paul is saying. I think that he's saying here. He is saying to them, I want you to know that I was scared when I was with you. I was scared I think most people not just in America but in the world because we've been taught that feelings are at best suspicious and at worst wrong I think we've been taught to not speak this way to not express ourselves this way he says I even felt weak because of this I felt weak I had no power I had no leverage when I came to you. And he ch- and the, and the courage that Paul had was he chose to do that because Paul had the mind to go toe-to-toe with these philosophers. But he chose to make himself weak so that the power of God would shine through the simple gospel of Jesus and him crucified. He chose to be weak, which led him to feel fear, And he trembled. He shook in his sandals or flip-flops or whatever he was wearing. (laughs) And my speech and my message were not plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and power, so that your faith may what? Not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. I wanted your faith to rest not on my brilliance, but on the power of Jesus. Think about that the next time you walk away going, you know, that was an okay sermon. I mean, if it's heretical, you should be really concerned about that. But I'm talking about when you're not wowed by the message. Had a dear friend reach out to me this week. He was hurting. He had some folks leave his church because he was told that when he preaches, he's not convicting enough. He's not convicting enough. And I had another friend pop up and say, I've learned that in, in my experience, I've learned that when people say it's not convicting enough, that it's not intellectual enough. They want to be stimulated intellectually. Because the truth is, I can stand up here and read Stephen's sermon in the book of Acts and not say another word, and every word is divinely inspired. And if that's not good enough for you, the problem's not with the sermon. The problem's not the sermon, the problem's our hearts. It's our hearts. And that was, kind of, that was kind of harsh, wasn't it? I don't take it back. I think it's good. So, um, <laughs> to Paul, being filled with the Holy Spirit's power and boldness did not mean that he wouldn't feel fear. In Paul's life, he went to the city of Corinth boldly and courageously, and shook in his boots the whole time. And he was filled with God's power. They're not the opposite. You can feel fear, tremendous fear, and still depend on Jesus and trust him and walk in his power. Some of you are waiting for the feeling of fear to go away at work. And Jesus is saying, trust me. I will walk with you. I will walk with you. I will be with you in the middle of that storm. I will be with you. Look at 2 Corinthians 11, verses 24 through 28. Might be a bit of a Bible drill today. Bear with me. 2 Corinthians 11, 24 through 28. Paul says this. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews... The 40 lashes less one. My math tells me that's 39. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, Danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night. Man, I don't know how you can preach prosperity theology after reading this, just, just an aside. In hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure... And apart from other things that I've forgotten about in my inventory of sufferings, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. And Paul doesn't chase that by saying, man, I'm so wrong to feel anxiety. That's bad. That's a sin. I should repent for anxiety. He says, apart from all that stuff that I go through, I carry anxiety Every single day for the churches. He's showing the Corinthians the ways that he suffers for the gospel. And he's saying to us, I deal with anxiety every day. Well, Chris, I mean, that's, come on. It's a spiritual anxiety because it's for the churches, you know? I mean, it's it's not like just basic anxiety because that's the wrong kind of anxiety. I don't think that's what the scriptures are telling us here. But this brings up the question, what about all those times in the Bible we're told not to fear? I mean, Because if you do like a search, a couple of y'all think I'm picking on you right now and I swear I'm not because I already did the search before you ever interacted with me this week. So you're, I mean, I'm not thinking about you. But you do an internet, just do a Google search for fear not. And how many times that comes up in the Bible? A lot. So what about that? <sighs> Dad, Gummit, I'm wrong. Let's go ahead and finish the service. I'm kidding. Um, Let's go back to Genesis chapter 15. I just want to give you a few examples of where the scripture tells us to fear not. And let's think about that through the eyes and the hearts of the people that God said to fear not. Look at Genesis 15 verses 1 through 4. Genesis 15, 1 through 4 is God visiting Abraham, speaking to Abraham, at the time Abram. A few chapters earlier, God told Abram, he said, man, my hand of blessing is on you, my paraphrase, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a lineage, a family that is going to outrun history. And that particular family is going to be so special and unique that I am raising up your family, your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, and they are going to bring the blessings of God to every ethnic group in the world. That's my call on your life, Abraham. And Abram, at this time, he and Sarai are really, really, really old, past the age of childbearing. Physically, it is impossible that they can have children. But Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. He trusted God in the face of impossibility. Genesis 15, Abraham just rescues his nephew Lot from being kidnapped. And he overcomes several other kingdoms, rescues Lot, and this mysterious priest named Melchizedek comes to him and blesses him. He blesses him. But Abraham is still childless. God's showing Abraham that he's going to have all these kids, and he's like, man, we still had not got pregnant yet, God, and now other people are like prophesying to me, telling me that God's blessings on my life, and this is all great, fine, and good, but man, I ain't getting any younger. And it's in this context, in Genesis 15, verses 1 through 4, that this happens. After these things, after this war and Melchizedek blessing Abraham, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, and the word of the Lord was this, fear not, Abram. Now, if you take those words, fear not, Abram, or just fear not out, it looks like a command. Don't you you fear. Stop it. I saw you fear. Stop it. Don't do it again. But I don't think that's what's going on here. I want you to imagine your child going to school and being maybe bullied. And think of the ways that you would lead your child. You would encourage your child. You would reach out to the principal and his teachers or her teachers and, 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 and ask for a meeting. And you would meet with those people. And you would say, hey, here's the deal. My son or my daughter is being bullied. And I want to know what you're going to do about this because I don't want my my child to be under this kind of emotional duress every day at school. And then you're going to go home after meeting with them and tell your child, hey, listen, you're going to grab their hands or their little face and you're going to say, it's going to be okay. Fear not. I'm with you. I love you. If you're ever in trouble, go to the office. Call me. I'll come pick you up. I'm with you. This is the tone, I think, of what we're seeing here. We don't see God with his judge's gavel saying, Abraham, fear not. Rather, he's saying, Abraham, I'm with you. I know you're discouraged. I know that you live in a culture that says that you really have accomplished very little if you don't have a lineage that carries on your family name. But I want you to know I love you. and I'm with you. Fear not. I don't hear command or imperative here as much as I hear God saying, you know what? I noticed you're feeling fear. And that's why I'm going to speak to you. we, We forget this. What precipitated God speaking to Abram? Abram's fear. God revealed himself to Abram because Abraham was in fear. God stepped out of eternity into Abraham's present, into his pain. And he said, hey, I feel the pain that you're feeling. I don't think I'm Dr. Filling this passage. I really think this is what's going on here. God is feeling Abraham's fear. And he went to him in it. And he didn't judge him and condemn him or punish him because he broke some spiritual rule where you shouldn't ever, ever fear. He simply wanted Abraham to know, I'm with you. You look at Genesis 26, verse 24. The same thing happens to his son Isaac. Isaac, he and his wife can't have babies either. And God comes to him in his fear and says, Fear not, I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. Fear not, Isaac, I'm with you. That's Genesis 26. And then you go to Genesis 46. Genesis 46. Then he said to Jacob, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. Why would he feel fear of going down into Egypt? Because the vice president of Egypt kidnapped one of his sons. What if God told you to go do that? Go to the place where one of your children was kidnapped. I'm going to bless you there. (sighs) That doesn't sound like something I wanted to hear in my prayer life, Lord Jesus. I want you to tell me something else, like you're going to give me the cattle in a thousand hills. But that's not what God said to Jacob. God said, go there. I'm with you. He knew Jacob's fear. He knew his fear. And he said to Jacob, I feel your fear too. I get it, Jacob. I'm going to be with you. Trust me. Trust me. Hold my hand. Let's go to Egypt. And during a severe famine, God used that strange pagan place to protect the children of Israel from dying off and ceasing to exist, going extinct. He used pagan Egypt to watch over Abraham's family. Fear not. You can go all through Scripture. Exodus chapter 20, verses 18 through 21. Check this out. God has just given the children of Israel the Ten Commandments. Why did he do that? Because God likes people to follow rules and that's it. No, it's more than that. The children of Israel, over 400 years have gone by. Over 400 years. And they're now enslaved in Egypt. Jacob's family of like 70-something people has now turned into millions of people. And this little Semitic ethnic group that was of no concern four centuries earlier, now they are a threat to the Egyptian empire. If these people get unruly and start to raise their backs against us, we're going to be in trouble because they treated them like slaves, one pharaoh after another. One pharaoh after another and gradually Jacob Joseph's story and Jacob's story and the children of Israel their story being saved and preserved in Egypt was forgotten and now they were a threat. And they were on the receiving end of tremendous social injustice and suffering because of their skin color. And God raised up a man named Moses to deliver them and lead them out of Egypt to the promised land. But on the way to the promised land, they stopped at a mountain called Sinai. And at Sinai, God descended and revealed Himself to them because these people had really foggy memories of who their God was. And God wanted to gather them together and form them as a a legit nation that he would use for his glory. And so he gave them the 10 commandments and something that helps me when I see 10 commandments, because I'm allergic to rules. I don't like following rules. And at times I need to remember that I need to submit to God and obey God. Sometimes when I look at the 10 commandments rather than just the 10 rules, because that's so attractive, right? I think of Israel's constitution, how God formed them into a new people and says, this is what I value and because you are my people, you're going to value the same thing that I value. You're not going to extort one another and exploit one another and take advantage of one another. You're not going to worship other gods because you follow the one true God and you can trust me and depend on me. You're not going to take advantage of your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's possessions. You're not going to do this or that because this is how I am. I want you to know the way my heart works and I want you to have my heart. And after all this, this is what the scripture says in Exodus chapter 20 verse 18 through 21. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but don't let God speak to us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you. Oh, that makes us feel better. God has come to test you. He's come to test you, why? That the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood afar off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. So he says, do not fear, God has come to test you so that you will fear. Don't fear, guys, but fear. Make sense? Okay, let's go. Low to the mountain. You know, that's not, that, this, is, this sounds crazy. But what we're seeing here, I think, is a little bit of nuance. God, god doesn't want his people cowering around him, terrified of him, as though he's some pagan god who's going who's, who's, who's to bully them and arbitrarily judge them. But God wants them to have a healthy fear of him because he's God. And we should respect him and honor him and revere him. Now I want you to put yourself in their shoes for a second, because what does God do to reveal Himself to His people? He doesn't just come walking around like this sort of semi-translucent spirit. That would have been interesting. How does He reveal Himself? Thick darkness descends on an entire mountain in the middle of the day. There's no shadow being cast on the mountain. Thick darkness descends on a mountain. All of a sudden they hear roaring thunder and flashes of lightning and they hear a trumpet blast. They're looking around. Nobody's got their instruments out. I mean, it's, there's this incredibly loud trumpet blast. Why did all this happen? Could it be that God wanted to create a visceral response of fear in them. He wanted them to fear. He wanted them to carry this visceral memory with them for the rest of their lives. Why? Because He doesn't want them to use their lives to sin against Him, but to honor Him. So whenever you come across any other threat that will tempt you to turn your heart from God, remember Mount Sinai. Thick darkness, lightning, thunder, a trumpet blast that was ear-piercing. God wanted them to fear. He wanted them to. Now, there's a lot of other scriptures in the Old Testament that we can visit. A lot. But they all say stuff like this. It's all either God using people's feelings of fear to stimulate honor and a love of holiness in their lives for Him, or it's God meeting them where they're where they are and saying, "Hey, I feel your fear. I'm with you. You're not a sinner because you feel fear." So here's a couple of couple of takeaways really quick before we finish this up. Fear, as I understand it, is not a sin or something that repulses God. What you see in the Bible is when people are feeling fear, God draws near. God is drawn to us in our fear. Why? Because God loves us. He loves us. But there's a difference between the feeling of fear and the posture of fear. That's a whole different ball of wax. Um, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3-7, through 7, for time's sake, I'm going to skip a few references here. You can always download my sermon manuscript on our app, uh, Renewal Memphis. Just look for Renewal Memphis in your app store. You can download all of our, our sermons, our sermon outlines, stuff like that, if you want to read over this. Um, but in 2 Timothy 1, through 3-7, check this out. Paul says to Timothy, his son in the ministry, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience. As I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. Whoa. What is so urgent that is happening in Timothy's life that Paul is praying for him night and day. What's going on? He says this. As I remember your tears. Your tears. Timothy is suffering. Timothy is going through a very, very hard time. And Paul is praying for him night and And day. Read this with heart, night and day. He says, I remember your tears. I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. He says, I am reminded of your sincere faith. Why is he saying I'm reminded of your sincere faith? Could it be that Timothy's faith is being tested? Maybe he's doubting. And Paul is reminding him there's a sincere faith inside of there. I know you're suffering. The turmoil is so bad that as a grown man, you are weeping. And I'm praying for you. He says, you've got the same faith that people before you had in your family. A faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And now, I am sure, dwells in you. What's he telling him? Maybe he's saying this. I can't back this up. But maybe what he's saying is this. Maybe you don't think you have the faith of those who've gone before you. Maybe you compare yourself to me. But I look at a legacy of faith in your family. And right now, you're hanging on by a thread. But I know there's faith in you. Paul's not rebuking him for his doubt, his fear. He's meeting him where he is. He says, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. There is something in you, and I know you don't feel it, but you're going to have to interact with it. You're going to have to feel it again, and you're going to have to get before God and fan that that baby into a flame. You're going to have to do that. Suffering is seeking to extinguish your faith. Fan it into a flame. For God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. What's he talking about here? He's telling us that the fear that he's feeling is totally legitimate, I think. But there's a danger with fear. Fear can lead us into apathy and downright disobedience if we allow it to take over our heart's and minds. and so there's a nuance here Feel your fear But don't be controlled by it And in the context of great fear Standing over us And casting a shadow over our hearts Paul says Get before God Fan that little flickering flame in your heart To a full raging fire again Become intentional Don't just wither under doubt and fear. Engage it. Feel it. Fear can be a gift. I would propose to you that fear can show us our idols. Fear can show us the ways that we depend on ourselves rather than depending on God. I've heard some preachers recklessly say things like fear is the opposite of faith. And I would say to you this... That fear isn't the opposite of faith, it's the pathway to faith. It's the pathway to faith. So, when you're feeling fear, I want you to push back on guilt and shame because you're not doing anything wrong because you're you're in fear. But do push back on a posture of fear that will lock you into a holding pattern that is totally apathetic and will will lead to disobedience unto Jesus. I want to close with a few points here. How do you get underneath your fear and deal with it? First, name it. Instead of suppressing it, ignoring it, name your fear. Say it out loud. I am in fear of this. Paul said it. When I came to Corinth, I was in fear and weakness and much trembling. He said it out loud, say it. I am in fear of this. Maybe it's fear of rejection because you know God's leading you to share the gospel with somebody in the workplace and you're really scared that that person might reject you and and ridicule you. That fear is not just going to vanish. But Jesus will be with you through it. Maybe there's fear of the unknown, sickness, tragedy, So you've embraced a life of isolation because, man, the news just paints a picture of Memphis that's scary. Maybe, seriously, you're afraid of serving in our church. Maybe you're an extreme introvert and standing at a door and handing somebody a bulletin and saying, hey, welcome to Renewal, I'm really glad you're here today, terrifies you. I'm not saying everyone who's an introvert needs to go greet. Uh, I think we need some extroverts there too, but... I will say that just because you're an introvert doesn't mean you have to be controlled by that. It doesn't mean you've got to be me. You don't have to be the life of the party. You don't. You don't have to be Mr. Excitement when you walk in a room. That's actually not authentically who I am. Ministry has just done that to me, and I will never forgive ministry for it. Um, Maybe you're afraid of diapers or new people or awkward moments. Maybe you don't want to serve in the parking lot ministry, not because your heart's hard to guide, but because you're just afraid of being really cold or really hot in the summer. (laughs) And you know what? It's okay that you fear that. It's okay. It's okay. Most of us in this room, I think if we were honest, a lot of the things that we do in our lives, we do not because we're really, really excited to do that. We feel fear And we face our fear because we know it's the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do. So after you name your fear, I want you to interact with your fear. I want you to remember and say to yourself that the feeling of fear is not sin. You're not in sin because you feel fear. That is a normal reaction to living in a tragic world. I want you to ask questions like this. What is my fear telling me about me? What is my fear saying about my idolatry and my impairments and my codependency, my stubbornness, my hard heart? What's my fear telling me? What is my fear showing me about all the ways that I don't really trust Jesus? I know I say I do at church services, but what does my fear say about my trust? And here's what's really cool about the gospel is Jesus is standing there going, and he knows every one of us have really flawed faith. And he loves us, and he wants to be with us anyway. And our flawed, impaired, jacked up, you know, three-legged faith is enough for Jesus because all he needs is a mustard seed. So you don't have to feel guilty that you don't have enough faith. Just engage your fear. Feel it. Look under the hood of your life. Ask what God is showing you. And so you name your fear. You interact with your fear. And then here's what you have to do. can't just stop there. Bring your fear to Jesus. Every day, bring your fear to Jesus. Depend on Jesus. The gift of fear, and I know that sounds crazy, but the gift of fear is to learn how to depend on Jesus. If you don't feel fear, you're never going to need Jesus. Fear is a gift. It's a mysterious gift. It's a gift that I love and that I hate. But it's a gift. So fight the posture of fear, not the feeling of fear. Don't fight your feelings of fear. Your feelings of fear are there. They're going to come and go. But the posture of fear leads you into apathy and disobedience. Fight that. Fight that. So again, the feeling of fear is not wrong, I would, I would propose to you. The problem is when we allow the feeling of fear to control us. Jesus, I thank you for today. I thank you for your people. I thank you for your mercy. I thank you that you love us deeply, even in our fear. You love us extravagantly on our worst day, in our most broken moment. You love us. And I pray, Jesus, that every one of us, as we walk together as a church family, would appropriately feel our fear. And we would fight against the stubbornness and the apathy and the disobedience that a posture of fear gives us. In Jesus' name, amen.